Well, hello, everybody. It's John Arnold here, uh, back for another installment of our Watch This Space podcast. And as usual, I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Fine. Hey, Chris, come on board. Hey, John. Hi, everybody. Great to be back. Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, you're welcome. And of course, we, 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 we have, I think we've found our groove lately in the past few months of doing our podcasts here. And I think for anyone out there who is, uh, listening, but also maybe watching, uh, what they did to get this podcast, you'll notice the first thing I want to mention is we have a bit of a updated look to, uh, the visual for our, our podcast. So we're trying to do a little bit of branding here. And, uh, we hope you like it. And I think, uh, it's, it, there's more to come. So we are, we are following a track to get this podcast, uh, uh, a little more, uh, interesting and certainly more appealing to a broader audience. So we are hoping you, uh, follow where we're going and we appreciate those of you who have been listening and staying with us for all this time. So we're getting better as we go. And uh, I think, Chris, we have, uh, I don't know, I think we have a pretty good formula here. Yeah, I think as we say, watch this space, and we're going to be focusing more and more on that specific, uh, specific theme, uh, or a goal of ours is to try to look a little bit ahead and be thoughtful about what's coming and dive a little bit deeper than most people do when they're just reporting news, right, John? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, we're, we, we're both very, uh, analytical. We're both pretty plugged into what's going on in our spaces and, uh, Here's the place where we talk about it. And we hope that will add value. But we're always, as John always says, we're always uh, open to input and things we could cover, things we could do better, things you like, etc. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So on that note, let's get into uh, what we have been seeing out there over the past few weeks. Um, you know, our last podcast was kind of our opening view of how 2020 is starting out, you know, new decade, etc. And uh it's an interesting time, right? Because we 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 when you think back, we did this last podcast, you know, what we were talking about in 2010 as that decade started out. And 2020 right now, there's just so many different forms of technology that we have to be working into our lives. And the changes are happening much faster than they were before. So, you know, now it's more like what we talk about might be out of date in six months as opposed to six years, you know? Yeah, I, I, it's definitely moving faster. And as we get older, we move slower, but we move with insight and wisdom, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's how we approach it. So we are going to talk about some things that are future-looking. Certainly the recent events that I've been attending have a big eye to the future but also what's happening in the moment. And uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from companies that have been around a long time and how they're adapting, um, but also for companies that are on the, you know, the cutting edge with the new technologies, what they're bringing to the market because what they see is coming. And I think there's a, there's definitely, I think it's always been a gap, right, in terms of diffusion of new technologies for them being adopted and actually having transformational impact. You know, I think uh, consumer world, things happen a lot faster, but in the enterprise world, there's always a lag, right? Yeah, and it's interesting how the evolution has been of the processes that cause the lag, because 
you know, once upon a time when you ran all your own computing, there was no cloud. There were very few standard platforms. Software was too super expensive. You know, systems weren't capable of what they are capable of now. Um, there was a lot of technical hurdles, and there's, there still are. But now it's more about the purchasing cycle, you know, security, compliance, finding staff to deploy against the problem. It's it's just interesting. Uh, and I think that will evolve, too. And those are all good reasons to be cautious. But it, it's just interesting about enterprises. It, it, the, the causes evolve, but it's always a, a potentially long sales cycle. Yeah. And there's no, there's no sure thing, right? I mean, it used to be if you bought an updated – I keep coming back to the PBX because telephony is still so central to everything we – think about and use and spend money on in the communication space. You know, when you buy a new PBX, you kind of know what you're getting. You know what it's going to do. You know how it's going to be used. You know how long it's going to kind of have a life cycle for a lot of certainty around that. And that's, that maybe masks some of the, you know, more adventurous stuff that's coming down the pipe. But the fact is people tend to stay in their comfort zone when they, when they think about these things, unless they have to make a change, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think also in the case of something like a, a PBX or let's say a PC slash server that's running a traditional kind of operating system, you know, the, a lot of these problems were debugged decades ago. Like it's pretty sure that if you have a problem with any kind of a traditional PBX or telephone system, there's a very well-known solution to that and the same is true for kind of traditional IT infrastructure. But when you, and, and I think, so on the telephony side, I think what's interesting is voice over IP and tools like we're using for this recording, you know, the Zoom, Uber conference, which is actually Dialpad, uh, Skype, um, WebEx, all of the tools ha have been around long enough that it is almost getting to the PX point where even though there's a lot of moving parts, you, you could deploy it with some degree of confidence, but you know, the next technology is much less certain, you know, whatever the next technology is, just like this was, you know, for years and years, you would never, if you were an IT manager, you would hardly ever stake your reputation on deploying a no telephones office. Whereas now that's pretty common, you know, so it just has to sink in and other people have to take the arrows in the back. And once that happens often enough and the problems get debugged, you get into a space where, in theory, you can recoup the cash flow for years and years. That cycle is decreasing, though, and so you have to move faster. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of a, you know, kind of a lead-in to, to future work, which is one of our, you know, common themes, because uh, there's nothing certain when you start. First of all, you call anything future. Obviously, we don't know what it's going to be, but this whole workplace environment is, is on, you know, it, it's an open book right now in terms of where it can go. And we don't really have the ultimate answers yet, like we do when you buy a PBX, but this is the opportunity we're looking at right now. So there's a lot to think about justifying decisions, implementing things, monitoring, and of course, you know, measuring some kind of a payback on these changes because to some extent these new technologies have to be deployed just because they're new and everyone's doing them. But there's also got to be a business case. It's also got to be a, a benefit to the organization and to the workplace, right? 
Yeah, and actually, you're that you make a very good point. Um, you know, on the watch this space, I think that as the discipline of developing business cases around things like user experiences and less less traditional forms of return on investing in a better workplace, that's really going to jumpstart things. Because if you look at if you look at what the barriers are to sales right now in some areas of smart workplace, it's really you have to convince fairly high up, unless it's a top-down thing where you have a very innovative leader, which sometimes you do, who's willing to stake a certain amount of capital, of, of, of personal capital on doing this. Um, the business case needs to be more carefully developed. If, if, a, if, for example, a person who's not that super senior person is trying to make the case. But I think that's happening. So, you know, that's another thing that as it happens, I think really starts to drop some of the barriers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the more we learn and the more forums we have to talk about these things, there's a little more certainty that goes into how we make these decisions because it's very easy to be kind of in a vacuum with this stuff and say, what does my organization need? What do I have to do? But when you look at the broader, you know, trends, what companies are doing, what they're learning, you know, it becomes a little easier to justify making these decisions. So I would say that a fair bit of that was was on display at the uh, Future of Work Expo that I recently shared in uh, Florida. So I think I'll share a couple of high high-level ideas from that to kind of round out that discussion. Because I think future work, you know, as, as you, you see a lot too, Chris, is, is it, it's a bit like this, it's a bit like the AI term itself. You know, it's, it's a loaded term because you're implying that, uh, work is going to change and that it might be better. There's always the promise of the future that it's going to be better. But of course, you could be very cynical and point to other areas where it may not be so great. So I think um, the unknown is always worth talking about, but it's also good to hear what companies are, how they're thinking about it today and what they're basing it on, right? Yeah. So this this event that I was at, you know, was part of the IT Expo, which you and I have both had many years of experience attending. And so the first thing I would say is I'm glad to see them embracing this as a topic to update their content and focus uh, attract the kind of audience that's thinking about tomorrow's technologies and really thinking beyond just the tech, but actually what it means, right? You know, it's very easy to go to a tech conference and just see what's the latest in, you know, routers and servers and mobile and whatever, IT systems and data storage, all that kind of thing. But what it's going to, you know, the next layer of that is what does that translate into for us uh, in the workplace? So that's why I'm happy to be part of this, and you've seen a lot of what's going on as well. So just to kind of get that conversation going, you've seen a lot is from your perspective, especially looking at the corporate real estate sector and how how they're thinking about these spaces. Do you think that they're leading the discussion in terms of the companies who are thinking about the space? Like, is the space going to define the workplace, or do you think the workplace is going to define the spaces? That's a very good question, John, and I think it's very, I think it's very fluid. I've seen a range. I've seen corporate real estate be the, the leading edge, 
and I've seen them be the trailing edge. It depends on who's in charge and what their vision is and how the future technology is presented to them and by whom. You know, fundamentally, real estate is, especially, you know, real estate is a very financial business. It's, it's you know, there's a lot of numbers involved. There's a lot of money involved in the scope of it. And uh, it's also very executional, right? Very transactional, executional, you know, not super visionary necessarily. When you have a real estate vision, it's more often a financial vision. Like I'm going to go develop in this neighborhood, which has not been so developed. You know, it's the way you think you think forward. You take certain risks and you agree to do them based on principles. However, I think that real estate is hearing more and more from other parts of the company that they need to be more responsive about this. I think some, I think that they are willing to be involved and they have a long experience with architecture and other of the creative parts of facilities. You know, depending on how it's presented to them, they can absolutely and should be part of the team and they're getting more and more interested in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is which is good to see, and and of course, uh, I suppose all eyes are watching these new models, these disruptive models, like we work in terms of what kind of an office space is going to really carry the day. The traditional ones or these more the, the hoteling kind of concept. Um, we shall see. But I, I wanted to um, tie that to our to, to what was going on at Future of Work. Because I think it's a good indication of, of where people's thinking is right now about this. And the underlying theme to all of this is that AI is going to be a driver for how the workplace evolves. And I think that's also going to be true for how the workspaces evolve in terms of how offices are designed and where spaces are utilized. You know, because everything is, you know, we're, of course, being very being very knowledge sector focused here in terms of office spaces. I realize, you know, factory environments and retail environments are very different. They're going to go through their own sets of changes. But, you know, in, inside a typical workplace, you know, one of the big pain points still is just everyday communications, you know, uh, just the, trying to be more efficient with sharing information, finding people, planning meetings, getting workflows going right. You know, everyday stuff, this is not like we're trying to reinvent the workplace. We're just trying to make it work better. And it's still really problematic. You know, despite, as you said, a lot of the technologies we use have been, are pretty mature in terms of their evolution, but we still have all these pain points in the everyday workflow. And it's, you really start to wonder, well, is AI going to be the next thing that's going to make it better? Or is this just an intractable reality that as long as we have to work together in a workspace, there's always going to be these, these, you know, bottlenecks and, 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 and things falling through the cracks, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, human nature is human nature, you know? Well, John, what did the, what did your, I mean, I, your, your, your usual self, but it looked like you put together and shared a great program there. So what did your speakers and guests have to say about this? Yeah, well, thanks. It, it was a good program, you know, in terms of the quality and the variety of speakers. And so a lot of the content they were talking about for two, two things. One is, yes, the, these problems of day-to-day communication are still out there, 
And the other one, of course, is, is contact center is, in other words, that customer experience, um, uh, you know, mandate now that every company seems to be obsessed with, with addressing and turning to AI. So looking at ways that AI is now transforming the contact center experience. This is what we heard a lot about in terms of how AI tools can now, you know, track customer journeys, how they can detect sentiment in the way we engage, how they can help the uh, agents, you know, respond faster, but also more intelligently because they can access all kinds of information in real time. And, and a lot of this speaks to automation. And it's not that different in the workspace as well, where you're talking about automating processes around meetings and sharing information. So that's an attractive theme for sure. We still have to worry about the technologies being up to the task. In other words, the quality of AI in terms of its ability to, you know, handle complex tasks is still a ways out. But the use cases are there to justify keep looking along these lines. So what I liked hearing was how vendors are kind of learning as they go, right, where the most utility comes from having AI capabilities kind of in the mix, like almost like in the DNA of how things are done. So a good example of this was Google gave an update on G Suite, and they showed all these kind of granular examples of how working within that platform has lots of AI built into it and machine learning built into it that you may not think about, but obviously Google has, and they're finding, you know, these subtle ways to insert these applications into these everyday tasks. So, you know, the, the exa good examples would be around, you know, using your, um, using your calendar, right? And, and so it get, once they, once G Suite gets to know your patterns in terms of how you set up meetings, it can see that you know, there are certain people who you generally do the same meetings with all the time. So it can start making suggestions to you or it can start automatically checking the calendars of all those people. Like as soon as you just enter a couple of keywords that says, I want to start a meeting, um, it already kind of knows the things you're going to be looking for because you've been doing this for so long. So I thought that was a pretty good example of where you know, you can make the process more efficient and, and it can like, like handle the process almost like end to end. And then, you know, as you're doing this, you know, you start to look for another one would be what they call, this is a good one called anomaly detection. So it will help you. In other words, let's say you have some, uh, some sensitive files in your workflow that, that may have to do with maybe a patent application or, or something like that or strategic planning. And because you identified it as um, a sensitive document, the uh, GC, G Suite will be able to track activity around that file. So in other words, if, if it's being shared or downloaded to people that aren't in your kind of known circle of trust, you would have no way to know that because it could go from, it's like coronavirus. It goes from one to another to another. Well, Google, the G Suite could track that and, and make, could flag it and say, Hey, this file that you've marked as sensitive is now being, is now 
been, just been sent to someone who is outside of your circle of trust for this kind of thing. That could be a way to sign of you know, give you a little more accountability of your data. And that's something you just normally wouldn't be able to do without AI. So little things like that are just like being more granular about our workflows and understanding what's important and what the pain points can be or risks that can be around workflows. To me, those are good examples that will address issues that you may not have had to think about before. But when you get into, you know, privacy and data security, there's a million things like this that AI can step into and help or help automate, you know, for, for the way we, we do our day-to-day tasks. That is really fascinating. I, I mean, I agree with it. That's 100% true. I mean, you think about all of the little things that just take up so much time and the mistakes that you can make. So I was thinking, actually, while you were talking, I was thinking about a G Suite example that's kind of interesting. It's I don't think it's a perfected thing, but you see it now again and you say, wow, that's kind of interesting. In Google Sheets, I'm a big spreadsheet maven. And you start mm-hmm. to gradually see little ways that it's helping you. I There are so many errors in spreadsheets. We've all made them. You see them all the time that you can imagine that just in that one area, the billions of dollars of, you know, risk reduction and productivity increase you could get by just looking for anomalies in spreadsheets. Like, mm-hmm. like put it, you know, sort of the equivalent of a spell checking pass that yeah. you can't, you, that you need a sort of AI to do, but it wouldn't have to be the most brilliant AI. It could just be something better than pure mechanical if then else kind of logic. And you could save a huge amount with that. And they should put that in Excel. They should, you know, it's, it's, it's just an interesting example, and you could look all through the, you know, ever, all the tools we use every day in the office. You really could see how people focus purely on being automated out of a job, and that is a big thing. But using that anomaly detection logic could really make things better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so when I mentioned before about future of work, we don't know what the future is going to be. It could be good. It could be bad. Just on the other side of things, uh, I just want to touch on one more very compelling talk, and it was from uh, Adobe. And that's a company I wouldn't normally think of in this future workspace, which itself is important because the leaders, you know, the, the cool companies to be paying attention to aren't just the little incubator startups, you know, that are doing really, really cool, specific things, <clears throat> but also bigger companies you know, that are, that touch a lot of things that may be a little under the radar for our everyday that we don't think about. And I never thought of Adobe in this conversation at all, but they are, uh, they have some really, really interesting examples and use cases. And I didn't know this, but this is kind of a good takeaway for everyone here. They are part of something called the Content Authenticity Initiative. And it's a partnership between Adobe the New York Times, and Twitter. So this is a new takeaway for me anyways. And it's all about obviously being responsible with how data is used and disseminated um, and keep the practices on the good side. So, you know, one of the best practices that the speaker talked about was this idea of, you know, respect the consumer, but serve the creator. So in other words, Make sure that when you're creating content using AI tools, you know, ideally to make the workplace a better environment, 
you know, you're doing so with good intentions, but also to this respect the consumer idea is that you want to make sure you are as objective as possible. So he talked a lot about when we get into things like facial recognition, the technologies ultimately end up serving the people who provide the data inputs. And those data inputs are, the, are driven from the sources that are generally the most available. So uh, you have all this pushback, you know, from, you know, uh, un, you know, visible minorities, un, you know, unrepresented population segments that don't necessarily turn up in these broad data sets. And that introduces all kinds of potential for risk because there's a built-in bias that comes from your data set that isn't necessarily respecting the whole broad base of consumers. And the same applies in the workplace. So when you get into things like facial recognition, you know, you have to think about where is that going to be used and who it could help and who, who it could not help. Um, there's a lot of false positives. Obviously, the potential is there. So very effective technologies, but it's got to be, you know, there's a lot of caveats there to do so. And uh, anyway, she cited some very cool examples, and the privacy stuff goes a long way, and we start talking about China, for example. And on the other side, you know, it's also a bit of a call to action to say, how far do you want to take this? So when we talk about future work being unknown, we at least can be aware that, you know, the the bad case scenarios are just as likely as the good ones. So to push back against this, for example, he cited cities like San Francisco have made the decision to not use facial recognition in public places because they feel there's too much risk with bad data and bias that's built into these systems that's going to be bad news for certain segments of the population. So that's an example of taking a stand within, in this case, a municipality, but it could also be within an enterprise that says, you know what, we think this technology has too much risk at the moment to be used. The benefits are there, but right now the risks are outweigh the benefits. So there's some, there's a bit of a call to action there to say, you know, the technology is what it is, but ultimately the humans, the enterprises have to decide how to deploy it. And I think I thought that was an important takeaway when you start getting into that future of work mindset, what future do we, do we want to create for ourselves? Right. I agree. And, and you brought up a very good point, which, you know, if we think about something actionable that we can say, I'll propose the following. I think that whenever an enterprise or really any organization, city, whatever, is getting involved with something that involves the collection of potentially sensitive, potentially misusable information, I think they, they need to be very clear about what the framework is for doing it, right? I mean, I'm not sure it's always a yes, no thing. Anytime an enterprise or an organization starts to use data that may be sensitive or even collecting a lot of data in general, it ought to be done with some kind of a framework. And I think I, it's not a, always a yes, no question. Like it's easy to say you're never going to use facial recognition, but that's kind of as much of an escape as saying we're going to put it everywhere because in, in fact, it is going to end up certain places. If the city doesn't, and then everybody who's got a ring system, you know, it's going to come there or, you know, the, the on-site corporate surveillance. So what you really need is a framework to define what's okay, what's not okay, how you use it, how you don't use it. Um, a little bit like GDPR is for broad data in general. And I think if you do that, and maybe what Adobe and the consortium are working on, 
then you can manage to slot it in properly. But I think there are more and more things in the office that are just going to be that way. They're sort of the technology equivalents of, you know, HR and other policies that had to develop for more organic things over the last X decades as corporations grew, or, you know, say environmental rules, things like that. And you can't just blindly, or I, I guess one should say one oughtn't, in my view, just blindly run ahead or run away when you can't avoid the confrontation one way or another, so you need to plan it. And I think if you do that, you end up being net safer than either extreme. Yeah. Well, there's so many potential unintended consequences, right, from these technologies. And, you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, the other the other angle is you go to an environment like China where, you know, it's just that's just how it's going to be because their mandate is different than in, a, in an open society. So there's no laws about how you can and cannot deploy the technology. It's just out there and you can choose to make of it as you will. But so, okay, you know, th- th- there's so much to consider here. I think with, with future work as a topic, I think we both agree it's, it's obviously going to be a work in progress literally for, for some time to come. And I'm not sure when the cutoff point is going to happen when we stop talking about the future of work. Like, will it actually be here and finished or is this going to be an ongoing theme that, you know, there'll always be something new to talk about. I, I think this is a very good timely thing for a 2020 topic, right? Because this, the future to me is this decade that's ahead of us now. Um, but I do hope we're talking about different things, you know, five, 10 years from now, because the future, you know, it's got to get here eventually. Right. Yeah. But I think you're right that it's a good topic to talk about right now, because I think we're at an inflection point in many, many ways in, in work and the world in general. And I think, you know, demographically, as we've talked about socially, culturally, technologically. And so it's a good time to pay attention to this. Don't you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that's a good way to, uh, to wrap things up today, Chris, because we are talking about watching this space, right? So, we have been watching this space and it's a good time to be watching this space because it's, it's exciting, but it's, it's also a little, it's, it's a little worrisome too, because we don't know how right businesses, enterprises are going to get it. And we don't know if the vendors will continue, uh, certainly pursuing AI. I mean, right now it's the hottest thing going, but you know, there's always the potential for AI to, to, not live up to expectations. It's been down this road before, right? Of being the next best thing and then going into, you know, hibernation for a few years. Um, it doesn't look like that way for now, but there's no guarantees, right? Um, I don't see us going back to the analog stage, analog world, but, um, you know, we, we, we have to give the future the benefit of the doubt, so to speak. I'd, I'd say. I think you're right, John. I think that's a good, a good, little philosophical point to end this on, don't you think? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm there. I'm there. We don't want to keep our listeners longer than they need to be. And uh, we've all got our days to get onto here. Well, you know, we could go on and on, but we'll continue to watch this space. And um, I think we're going to stick with this broad river of a theme. We'll, we'll dip into other things occasionally, but, 
this whole evolution of work is a pretty big topic. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. On that note, we will wrap up and thank our listeners again. We're really happy you're with us and we are happy to be here talking about these things. So uh, I'll uh, pass the handoff. I'll give the handoff to Chris to say goodbye and we will see you on our next podcast. Well, thanks, Joan. Thanks everybody for listening. Goodbye. And we will talk to you next month.